One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to the Full Throttle Podcast, the 16th of the year. I'm Eurosport commentator Greg Haynes, and it's Monday the 13th of July, 2020. Please, if you haven't already, subscribe to Full Throttle through any of the major podcast platforms to hear plenty more like this coming up today. In the morning was quite fun. Uh, me and Johnny was kind of having a head-to-head, but I think he put five tyres in. Um, and uh, after I put three, I said to the guys, OK, this is, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Scott Redding there as the fun and games with Jonathan Ray continue in World Superbike testing. Ray led the way with the fastest lap time in Catalonia last week. And there's an exclusive full throttle interview with Eugene Laverty. Uh, we knew that there was prime time whenever the, the asphalt was called. We knew that was the time for the X Factor edition. Straight from the horse's mouth there, an X Factor shootout then between Laverty and teammate Tom Sykes to decide who stays and who goes after the shock announcement that Michael van der Mark will trade in Yamaha Blue for BMW White in 2021. But first, drama in World SVK's second category. So a warm welcome to the show. And would you believe it? Would you believe it? COVID situation permitting, with a capital P there, we have just two non-World Superbike weekends to go until the season finally resumes 22 weeks after Australia with Jerez in Spain on the opening weekend of August. So it's the 13th of July today. It was on this very day in 2003 that Sete Gibernau started his 100th MotoGP race at Donington Park. He finished second to Max Biaggi, but ahead of Valentino Rossi, his arch nemesis as Loris Caparossi and Troy Bayliss completed the top five. A little bit of history for you there. And it's on this day in 2020, right now, that we celebrate the 58th birthday of former motorcycle racer and the very friendly boss of the GMT 94 team. It's Christophe Guillaume. Bon anniversaire then to the Frenchman who continues his recovery from an accident at Magny Cour a few weeks ago when he was coaching some up and coming riders. So get well soon, Christophe. We're all thinking of you. Regards from everybody here at Eurosport. And incidentally, GMT94, Christoph's team, and Dynavolt Honda, Simon Buckmaster's team, will be, amongst others, testing this week at Motorland Aragon in Spain. So watch out for details on that one online. But we start the show, how about this, with more news on another Supersport rider. In fact, the reigning world champion, Randy Krumenacker, And to be honest with you, this is absolutely astonishing. We saw a statement go out over the weekend, first from Randy Krumenacker and then from his MV Augusta T. Now, first of all, before we get into that, just have a listen to this. Locatelli on the right, on pole. Kumanaka's made a terrible start. He almost jumped it and drops right back as World Supersport begins. Luca Meyer side by side with Locatelli. What a terrible start for Kumanaka. Yeah, and it, they held him a long time there. There, there was a long hold there with the engines revving. A uh, few people made edge. Oi! Is that Kumanaka? That is Kumanaka. Yeah. Look at the damage to the motorcycle. Yeah, that's, that's destroyed. Is that fast corner? Locatelli leads. Luca Myers is second, but the reigning world champion didn't even get past the first corner. Randy Krumanaka down and out. Yeah, and that's all down to a bad start, panicking. Well, that was James Whittam and yours truly in commentary on Sunday the 1st of March with the Phillip Island World Supersport opener. Krumanaka then, as you heard there, almost stalled from the front on the grid. They did seem to hold them on the lights for a long time, but it was a perfectly valid start. And down went the Swiss all the way to Australia to crash as the reigning world champion at the very first corner 
of the season. So we had all that drama. Then, of course, we've had the delay with no more racing since then. But it seems as though Randy Krummenacker will not be back on the MV. How about this? Here's the statement then. This went out from Krummenacker over the weekend. And it was headed in big capital bold letters. Randy Krummenacker will not continue the 2020 season with MV Augusta Repato Corsi. I'll read the full statement for you. With this press release, rider Randy Krummenacker confirms his intention to dissolve his contract with MVRC SRL. That's the company behind the MV Augusta Repato Corsi team due to serious breaches on the part of the company that compromised both the rider's performance as well as his professionalism, reputation, and personal integrity. So some massive statements being made here by Randy Krummenacker. The statement continues, Krummenacker has sent the company formal notification in which all the reasons leading to his decision are clearly outlined. Krummenacker has also moved to inform the competent bodies responsible for verifying any technical irregularities. It continues, the Supersport 600 World Championship title holder, the reigning world champion, of course, has reached this difficult decision after having carefully evaluated the risks involved in dissolving the agreement. On the one hand, and the values for which he has always stood, professionally and personally speaking, on the other. And then there's a block of eight or ten lines of Randy Krummenacker in quote marks, and this is what he says. This is not a pleasant situation, and I never wanted any of this. The aim was to fight for the world title once more, but unfortunately, the foundations needed to move ahead with the project with MV Augusta Repata Corsi are not there. I have had to take this decision in order to preserve my moral and professional integrity as well as my safety. Throughout my career, I have always tried to do the right thing, giving it my all in any situation, even the most challenging. And remember, Krumanaka comes from Moto2. He's raced there in the World Championship before. And of course, he did a year in World Superbike as well in 2017. And he's done a few seasons in World Supersport. He won the title last season. This is how the press release finishes with the rest of this quote. But this time, there was only one decision I could make. I cannot say more about my motives at this time, but further details will be communicated in due course. So basically there, reading between the lines, he's clearly very upset with MV in terms of a contractual disagreement, but also claiming that the bike isn't safe. Technical irregularities. Now, remember, and I'll just throw this in here, Krummenacker has previous with this kind of outspoken statement, doesn't he? Remember the interview he gave Charlie Hiscott live on British Eurosport from the San Juan circuit in Argentina at the penultimate round of 2019. So we're only going back six months or so uh, when he was very outspoken about his team at the time. The Evan Bros Yamaha team claiming on that occasion that his teammate Federico Caracasulo, who was also, of course, his title rival, basically said he had a more powerful engine and that was live on the TV. So we've had that from Krumanaka in Argentina last year. Now, totally different team, and this statement's gone out regarding MV Augusta. Now, it doesn't stop there, because not long after the Krummenacker statement, we had a response from MV Augusta, and there's an article on the German language Speedweek website, a very good source of information in the paddock. They're very close with uh, many of the teams and many of the riders as well. Uh, it's gone out on Twitter as well. There's a hashtag that's gone out, which is Casso Krummenacker, the Krummenacker case in Italian. Uh, and what it basically says is a quote from the team boss, Andrea Quadranti, and it's basically saying that Randy's allegations are unfounded. They're in the hands of lawyers, so it's gone to the lawyers already. Uh, also states that they are independent from MV, the actual manufacturer. It's a private team, so it says here, unless there's been an error in translation, but that's how I read it. And the final of the three points, that they will continue in the World Championship with Raffaele De Rosa and Federico Fellini, their other two of the three riders, and they're looking for a new leading rider because, of course, they've lost Randy Krummenacker. So what a situation. Staggering situation there. Astonishing stuff in World Supersport. And it really isn't what we need, is it? It's good drama in a way, but it's not what we need at all in terms of the World Supersport Championship to lose the world champion. Now, whether he'll be on the grid in Jerez with another team or not, I don't know. In terms of the latest rider rumors, there is one rumor doing the rounds that he might be on the Barney Ducati 
if Leon Camier with that niggling shoulder injury cannot return. Although I'm also hearing that none other than Marco Melandri himself may be back in the paddock on that Barney Ducati of Leon Camier. That's just a rumor. Don't know whether it's going to come true or not. We'll find out. But just putting that one out there, as I've heard it from a few colleagues over the last few days. But what a staggering situation there involving Randy Krummenacker. But in the meantime, let's crack on then with the real meat of this podcast this week. World Superbike testing in Barcelona last week and the last test before the Jerez round at the start of August. Boiling, boiling hot track temperatures in the high 50s, even the early 60s, depending on who you speak with. Perfect training, though, for Jerez and Portimao on those first two weekends of August, where it will be absolutely scorching. Jonathan Ray set the best time in the test in Barcelona last week in the cooler morning temperatures of Thursday, which was the second of the two days, a lap time of 140.450. Scott Redding was just one-tenth slower, but he was halted by an engine problem on day two. So let's listen in now to five-time world champion Jonathan Ray and BSP champion Scott Redding. Yeah, I felt really good out there again. You know, just uh, we worked in the morning on our ultimate pace. We used a soft tire and yeah, I felt really good to push. Yeah, and then we waited a little bit in the afternoon to the heat uh, to come right up to confirm some items in the heat. Kept working with the uh, race tire and understanding how, how the performance is dropping, how we can manage, and I felt pretty strong. So it's been a really good test to, to get my confidence back where, where it should be. And I think we really improved the bike with, with turning and especially in the hot conditions. So looking forward to the, the races ahead, that's going to be a, a good advantage for us. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm quite happy with the test, to be honest with you. It's been uh, quite good for us to work with the bike and the tyres in the hot temperature. We did have an engine problem in the end, so I couldn't actually go out and try to improve the lap time. That was the lap time I did directly after lunch when it was really hot. So I was quite happy, actually, that the guys couldn't beat it at the end. So my main goal today, I wasn't really focusing on a one lap time. I was really trying to work with the used tyres. Uh, in the morning was quite fun. Uh, me and Johnny was kind of having a head-to-head, -head, but I think he put five tyres in. Um, and uh, after I put three, I said to the guys, okay, this is, this is ridiculous. Like, you know, every time I went out, I went faster. Then he would put another tyre and he used two cues. And uh, I just used the one and I thought it was fun. Like, you know, it was quite spicing up the, the thing, but it's okay. One of us is going to end up uh, with a big crash because we keep going faster, faster, faster. Um, and I wanted to remember for myself that the goal of today was to work in hot conditions on long runs. So, you know, it was, uh, it was nice, but the work had to be done and we did that this afternoon. Um, and I'm happy to go away from here to finalize a few things that we tested in Mizano, come here and they are better, so we'll keep them. So some great fun and games going on there. World Championship leader Alex Lowe's in the meantime, who of course had that great win in Australia, was fourth in the test. Another Australian winner was Toprak Razgatioglu, but both he, the Patti Yamaha rider, and Leon Haslam, the Honda rider, had big, big crashes in Barcelona last week, and they were both very fortunate to walk away from those. Haslam in the meantime, and his Honda teammate Alvaro Bautista, had no new parts to test. Uh, that decision was made as HRC's Japanese engineers couldn't make it to the test in Spain. Here is the pocket rocket, though. Leon Haslam himself describing that incident. Yeah, it was uh, not the start that I wanted after the three-month break, but uh, yeah, I was lucky because it was very big. Um, but it was nice to get out this afternoon, uh, especially learning the track and coming back after the long break. For sure, we missed some laps. I think uh, today we only make 40 laps uh, and still learning the circuit. And uh, obviously, our main objective was to evaluate some of the things that we had problems in Australia. So I feel we have made uh, some good steps with the small laps that we did. So Leon Haslam there, but however, there was massive interest and intrigue, I think it must be said, involving the riders who were third and sixth on the combined timesheets by the end of the two days of testing. They are, of course, the BMW teammates. Tom Sykes, the 2013 world champion, and the man who finished second to him that year, then on an Aprilia, Eugene Laverty. Of course, Sykes won the title on a Kawasaki. Laverty was second on an Aprilia. Now, we know Michael van der Mark is going to the BMW team next season, the burning question now, of course, is who will be his teammate? We'll hear from Sykes later in the podcast, but for now, let's turn our attention to this week's feature interview. It's a very upbeat 
and somewhat rejuvenated, I would say, Eugene Laverty. I spoke to him through Skype on Saturday from his new home on Portugal's Algarve. So here we are, Eugene Laverty, this week's feature interview on Full Throttle. Eugene, thanks a lot for joining us from your home in Portugal. I think first and foremost, let's talk about Bruce because there is a hilarious story to talk about there involving Alvaro Rennes and Alex Rins. Just tell us what happened a few weeks ago. This is Bruce the dog, of course. <laughs> yeah, a little uh, dog Bruce we adopted almost three months ago. We call him Bruce Houdini. That's what he's known <laughs> uh, as at the dog shelter as well because he's just a little escape artist. Uh, we have to always run him on uh, two leads because he can get out of the neck harness or the body harness in one uh, fell swoop. So when you've got two on him, it means that if he gets out of one, at least the other one's there as a as a backup. So, yeah, when uh, Albert and uh, Alex Rins were down here at Portimao riding their bikes and they, they called around uh, a couple of times. And as they opened the gate, they knew to be careful with Bruce because of how he is. And as Albert came in the gate and he went to close it, he looked around, where's Bruce? just escaped so that was us the, uh, the three of us running around buddy looking for for Bruce, Bruce before he uh, escaped again as he had done already a few months ago when he managed to, to <laughs> escape for 18 hours and uh, finally he turned up uh, after a marathon distance away now looking at this this latest time of course your wife Pippa had fitted in with a, a GPS tracker essentially like like with a stolen car or something <laughs> but the first time he managed to get 40 kilometers away didn't he how the hell does that happen yeah, I don't know, because he, uh, he doesn't eat much either, so there's not a pick on him. So whenever he went and ran a, a marathon, I thought, okay, maybe you are feeling okay. Maybe you don't need to, to eat that much if you mm. run that far overnight. Maybe he's uh, getting on okay, but um, I think that's it. He's, he was brought up as a little hunting dog for five years, so just uh, he likes to be out and about. But uh, we've had him for three months now, and that's kind of what they say, three months before. <laughs> uh, he okay. in and knows it's his, his home, and uh, he doesn't let Pippa out of his sights now. So he knows it's his territory now then. But what's it like really having a pet? Because I know certainly with our job, when we're traveling a lot and not at home too much, it would be quite difficult to have a cat or have a dog or any pet for that matter. Who looks after him when you're away? Well, uh, I've been away for two tests uh, recently and Pip has stayed here. But yeah, if Pip comes to some of the races, we've got some friends that will uh, um, look after okay. him for the few days that we're away. So yeah, it's a... It's a, a tough one, as you say, but um, yeah, it'll be nice whenever you get back on a Sunday night or Monday, Monday morning to see him again. Yeah, yeah. Now that's going to be a good uh, motivation to go away, have a good weekend and come back and see him, isn't it, on a Monday or a Tuesday when so, this season gets going again. Now we know the season is going to get going soon and there's been a lot of tests going on. There's so much going on at the moment, actually, Eugene, isn't there, involving BMW? It's difficult to know where to start. Maybe we should start with Australia and just get that out of the way and just bring people up to speed with how it's going so far. You didn't really get the break you needed, did you, in Australia? It, it could have been a much better weekend. You've even said it yourself for you and for Tom Sykes, for the whole team. Uh, but that crash on Sunday morning sort of, you know, put your pants to bed, didn't it? it? It was a tough week, tougher than I expected, because I knew going to Phillip Island that this bike, when it's performing, the BMW is absolutely built for that circuit because in the fast flowing corners, the bike is incredible. And uh, I thought, yeah, with the work we'd done in the winter, bringing the power delivery forwards and uh, you know the rideability of the bike was so much better i thought well we're not quite there yet but hopefully the bike will work because philip island you know I, I think if we went there now you know the the bike's obviously right in the, the ballpark now but yeah that week i went out on track and realized ah oh, no this thing is still a handful to ride so we um we spent those days trying to get the bike manageable for the race Finally, sort of get got there by Saturday, but I did a crap super pole, made it tough starting down field. But in the race, one I was flying, um, you know, Bautista came through the field. I was coming through the field, but unfortunately, we don't have the horsepower of the Honda. So, and the Galvaro made it up to fifth, almost catching the front group while I get stuck down uh, ninth, tenth position, battling with the Ducatis because they would just overtake me in the straight line again. But I knew that um, we uh, had finally unlocked the potential. Sunday morning went out, um, heading to go top of the timesheets on my first flying lap, better than my Super Bowl lap, and I crashed with a couple of corners to go. <laughs> uh, so just, yeah, my mistake, obviously. But I think uh, I was then looking forward to Qatar, and it never happened. No, it didn't, and we're all expecting it to happen, weren't we? What a strange time it's been. Just before we started recording, we were talking about last year, weren't we, and your incidents in Thailand with the brake problem 
on the go 11 Ducati at the time. And then the issue at Imola when you broke your wrists. It feels like such a long time ago. And in reality, Imola last year, it's only 14 months ago. It feels like ages ago, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a lot uh, happened since then at the same time. But um, I think the best thing to do is take last year as an experience, uh, put it behind me. And um, thankfully, I've stayed on board since then. You know, since Imola last year, I've only uh, had two crashes is that right yeah i've only had that that spill in the philip Island, so it was nearly about a year between one crash to the next and mm, unfortunately good. i ended up in the medical center both times <laughs> you know literally when i crashed it seemed to be big ones yeah, well, last year was a lot more serious uh philip Island, which is a, a concussion then and then uh at the catalonia test just this week i had another little spill so yeah i've been staying on i've been a good boy the last year yeah what happened actually at the catalonia test because i know you had an incident on qualifying tyre which was unlucky again you don't seem to be very lucky with the Q tyre at the moment do you but what happened at Catalonia which corner was it well it's, you can't say it's unlucky whenever you crash you know uh, <laughs> it has to be somebody <laughs> at fault and it's generally the rider so yeah, that's very honest of well, you well uh, it's something that we know is an issue with uh, this BMW because uh, like I say I've only crashed it twice and uh, both crashes have been freak uh, exactly the same what happened at Phillip Island happened again at Catalonia when I'm breaking, changing direction, the rear snaps sideways on me and uh, chucks me. And it's happened in Phillip Island whenever uh, I knew the bike was working incredibly well and that morning warm up, got a little bit excited and was like, oh, that's, that's, you know, ride loose, give it some. And it bit me. And then this happened again, the qualifying tire. Uh, I've done a great lap on race tires. That 41.4 was sitting really third quickest generally on the timesheets and thought, okay. Let's uh, get into these 40s up uh, in the mix. Went around turn three, four, tons of grip, got giddy. And uh, like I say, whenever you ride loose, how you should on one of these bikes, unfortunately, the, the thing twists on me. And we really mm. need to, to address that. But we know exactly what we need to do. But uh, just getting a little bit impatient that it hasn't been implemented yet. So is that like an electronic setting? Or is that like the fact you've got a, a sticky, nice new qualifying tire on the rear, which is pushing the front? Or, you know, what's causing it? Uh, no, it's, it's chassis-wise. It's something that we have to address right. with, the, with the actual uh, chassis. And that's why at the moment you have to ride this bike almost wooden. You know, you, you have to ride inside it. And that's not my style. I like to to be loose on the bike, to be outside it, because that's how you manage tire life, putting the bike upright and throwing your body side to side, helping to change direction. But right now, unfortunately, there is this twist that's occurring with the, the chassis I've never had with the bike before. But we, we know it's it's a pretty easy fix. Uh, I hoped it would have been in place for Lazarus Ring already, and it wasn't. And even Lazarus Ring, I uh, was quite nervous. There's one of the little corners, corner three to four, where you break change in direction too, and I felt the rear snap on me a few times there. Thankfully, it didn't spill uh, then, but it's happened at every track. Also, Portimao was having that issue. So it bit me. It fell about in a huge crash. Uh, Barcelona bit me, and they're up... Um, you know, I landed back on it at the Barcelona test, went under the gravel and then had to set it down. But um, it shouldn't happen. At this level, you should be able to ride the bike um, in an attacking way. Unfortunately, I can't right now. It's great in the long runs, don't get me wrong, like um, how you will ride a little bit more calm in body movements and uh, such like during a race run because you have to for 20 laps. Um, so it's good in that respect. But whenever you want to, to really hang loose and push for a lap, it can bite you. Tom, it doesn't affect as much. You know, Tom's a little bit more central on the bike, a little bit more of an old school riding style. Uh, but for me, whenever I want to throw myself around, uh, I'm not able to ride out my maximum. Well, at least you know what the problem is. That's the good thing, isn't it? So you're heading in the right direction. For anyone listening, by the way, who's wondering about Michael van der Mark joining BMW, we haven't forgotten. We'll come to that in a few minutes as the podcast goes on. But first of all, Eugene, when you started riding this BMW the back end of last year there was obviously some testing going on in Hareth and places like that I remember in interviews you were saying you couldn't quite believe how it was set up and particularly the electronics so just for anyone who's not technical like me what do you actually mean by that did it just feel completely is it because of Tom's unusual riding style or is it a combination of that and just the way the bike is what what was so strange about it well it just didn't feel um conventional you know a motorbike no matter what cc it is it needs to feel like a motorbike you need to be mm. able to open the gas from be it zero to 100 percent, and that needs to feel zero needs to feel zero 50 percent mm. needs to feel half gas and it needs to be linear in your hands right. but now this this bike had uh, strange steps where it would spin up uh, the power wasn't linear 
trash and control wasn't trash and control. If, <laughs> if uh, that makes <laughs> sense, it wasn't really uh, how we know it. How I've been riding the last ten years with trash and control. This um, wasn't it wasn't working correctly. So we had we knew we had to go back to the drawing board because um, it wasn't going to work in long runs and now we need so was it was it almost like a button throttle on or throttle off but nothing in between that sort of thing you almost could say that yeah you know there's a reason really? why we've got a, a twist grip on a motorbike and there's a reason why we've got it uh the number of degrees it is i'm not sure what a conventional mm. throttle is 60 something degrees so you gotta ask yourself why isn't it just 30 it's because we need that and this bike didn't have that um linearity of the power so uh, what Tom did last year was uh, was impressive at times, but you know, you need a bike to be capable of being strong at all 13 rounds. And uh, whenever I first showed the bike, uh, it was clear that it wasn't at that level, but uh, we've brought it along since then. I was having a chat about this topic with Leon Haslam, actually, a couple of years ago when we were talking about the comparison between BSB and World Superbikes. And he was saying, coming back from BSB, well, going back is one thing with no traction control, but he said coming back to World Superbikes is almost more difficult because whereas in BSB you're doing exactly what you were just saying and feeding the throttle on as you would do in most circumstances, in World Superbikes, in some cases, you were almost having to fully open the throttle completely against the rider's nature and just expect and hope, obviously, that the system's just going to take control of it. That must be really odd. I can't really imagine what that must be like. Well, I think some do rely on it more than others. Um, but it's definitely the case that you can see with Scott Redding and Leon Haslam that BSB, I think, brought their riding on because whenever you get yeah. that rider aid taken away, Scott used to always suffer with tire life and now he's a lot better because he had to put it back in his hand. And uh, in the mm. second half of last year, he was very impressive at the end of races in BSB. So I have it. Maybe a lot of uh, fans listening to the comments I've been making since I got on the BMW suspect that then I'm a rider that is relying completely on the electronics because that's what I was always trying to develop, but that's uh, really not the case. Um, I wanted it there as a rider aid to work together with me, and that's that's how it should be, especially in uh, long runs. It should be manageable because the fuel load's changing, tire life is dropping off, but you want the traction control to, to remain fairly constant. Do you not think it's impressive as well, using just how close the superbike lap times have been this week to the MotoGP lap times? Now, I know conditions are a bit different. I know the unofficial MotoGP record is a 38-something, I think, something like that. So, obviously, the Grand Prix bikes are quicker. But even so, for what is essentially a, a souped-up road bike to be going that close to a multi-million euro Grand Prix prototype is pretty impressive, isn't it? Even if the electronics and the tyres are different. It's pretty close, isn't it, really? Well, lap time's a funny thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. you, you can see what you want to see, and that's that's the problem with statistics. Sometimes people can compare two numbers and present them yeah. in reality when it's not the yeah. case. And so being devil's advocate here, I'll, uh, oh, yeah, I've got to point out a few things then. So Yeah, go, go, go. I did, on, like I say, on a soft race tire, I did a 41.4, but yet in the heat of the afternoon, my fastest race lap was a 43.3. So that's mm. almost two seconds slower. So while it may look impressive, there's a couple of seconds disappeared just because of um, putting in you know, a tire at the right time. So you could almost say that while it's impressive that Superbike's getting so close to the MotoGP lap time, uh, you could always also say that our race runs are actually closer in lap time to Moto2. So suddenly that sounds less impressive, yeah. doesn't it? So, you know, it's like I say, it's, it's great the lap times that we're doing on one-off slaps, but while MotoGP can race in 40s, MotoGP, uh, we're able to maintain that, whereas us guys in the super bikes, 43 is a realistic lap time, and Moto2 can race in high 43, so we're closer in lap time to Moto2, so it's pretty impressive what uh, those bikes can do as well. Yeah, absolutely. What I just find funny about it is, there's certain people in the superbike paddock who love to big up the facts often. There's certain people in the Grand Prix paddock who hate it when people do that. And it just creates a bit of a talking point, doesn't it? But I suppose we should really think and be honest here. A superbike shouldn't be as quick as a MotoGP bike, should it? I still think it's impressive how close they are generally. But they're not supposed to be quicker, are they? No, no, that's why I don't understand this this contest. It's uh, you know, MotoGP is the, the pinnacle of our sport. Um, yeah, you know, at the end of the straights, they were going 345 through that speed trap where we're hovering around 310, so it's clear they should be going faster. 
Um, but that's human nature, isn't it? It's a dick swinging mm. contest and guys get yeah, carried away. Yeah, yeah. So MotoGP is the fastest uh, lap times, then followed by World Superbike, then followed by Moto2, and then World Super Sport, followed by Moto3. So this contest and trying to beat the guys that are in a different category, I can't really fathom why you would strive to do that. The most important thing is to beat the guys in your category. Nothing else matters. Well, absolutely, yeah. What's quite funny is as well, I think, to a layman watching a race, often the slower races are the more competitive races anyway, aren't they? You get a bigger pack together, Moto3, Supersport 300. It often does seem like the slower the race is, the closer it is. Well, that's that is the case. The, the straights become longer, uh, the slower yeah. your bike is, so then stream takes more of an effect. So uh, that's always going to be the case. That's why you look at something like the Northwest 200 road race. And it's slipstream city. It's rare that somebody can escape because uh, the effect of slipstream, it's more akin to a bicycle race. And that's why one guy can't disappear in uh, a stage in the Tour de France when it's on uh, flat terrain, but they can on a mountainous terrain. So you can almost uh, liken that to, to our sport. Uh, once you're able to sit behind somebody's slipstream on a slower bike in a straight line, you can hang in there. But on a big bike where the straights, the bike's trying to wheelie, the straights are shorter, then you've got a chance to escape. Yeah, Moto3 race is definitely like that, isn't it? And the Supersport 300 race as well with the peloton, as it were, and very, very seldom does somebody actually get away. Great for us, though, watching and commentating on the telly. Ah, the Supersport 300 stuff's great, isn't it? When you see yeah. the pack that oh, was together, yeah. when Abrana Carrasco won her championship, that last lap was mental. They were just chopping and changing position and they were trying to update the championship as it stands but they couldn't couldn't keep up i know that was we were really my eyes were on springs at that moment for sure <laughs> and she just got it didn't she by one point it was incredible it was that's how racing should be it was brilliant yeah i completely agree with you it should be completely unpredictable down to the last corner of the last lap and it was uh superbike's looking good as well though isn't it i mean it does seem like we've got a very competitive season everyone's seeing i have to think jonathan ray still the favorite but i think reading's looking good top rack's looking good you guys are getting more competitive all the time Chaz seems to be bouncing back finally now you've got the hondas there which everyone seemed very afraid of certainly for next year it is looking good this year isn't it definitely i think superbike is in a, a golden era now where we've got the these um manufacturers coming back on an official level uh it's absolutely brilliant for the championship because for a while it was a contest between you know the, the red and green bikes and then uh, yamaha yeah. were, were trying to hang in the fight there but suddenly now with bmw coming in we're supporting us and uh, then honda was a big surprise coming back in uh with uh factory support it is it's, it's great for the championship and now Obviously, we still have to catch up, like you just said, because uh, Johnny's been same team, same bike for so many years. Um, we are obviously playing catch up because his experience, we're always returning to the same tracks. So he's not going slower every year he returns. He's only going faster. So yeah. we got to work extra hard to catch up. Okay, let's cut to the chase then and talk about the thing people are really wondering with respect at the moment. What is going on at BMW? First of all, Michael van der Mark has signed, very unexpected signing to leave Yamaha after what will be four seasons. He will no longer be top right, Raskatioglu's teammate. He's joining BMW. What was your reaction to that first and Tom Sykes' reaction? You know, where were you? How did you find out? How did that go down? Uh, yeah, it was a huge surprise. Uh, I can't deny that. It was unexpected because uh, the season essentially hasn't started yet. Um, but yeah, I think there was clear now is there, there's one seat left and, uh, Tom and I are, are battling for it. We just got to be on our best performances and it seems like every test, every race weekend is almost, uh, we're under scrutiny. So that's why I was, I was extra pleased with how Barcelona went. It's probably the best that I've ridden in, for, in so many years. So, um, nice to be back in top form again. I'm feeling so good on the bike. Have you spoken to Michael van der Mark since the announcement was made? Uh, no, I haven't actually, but uh, that's not out of, out of choice or any uh, friction there. It's just you don't often speak with uh, riders during the test. We're so busy. I think I, I got chatting with Chaz, who's one of my best mates, just in the restaurant as he was eating, as I walked past with my, my mask on, um, and then stopped to, to chat with him. Uh, and then obviously speaking with Tom Sykes, my teammate, it must be strange. Looking at it from from the outside because it's clear <laughs> that Tom and I are, are battling for the, the spot, but all we can do is put in our best performance and uh, see what happens. And without going into too much detail, obviously, you know, we can't talk about confidential conversations that have happened, I'm sure, but I'll have to try and ask you anyway, Eugene, because I know people are going to be wondering, is it a given that one of you will be with Michael van der Mark? Because I guess in theory, they could change both of you, but you have to think 
one of you will be retained. Is that what the team has sort of told you? It would make sense, wouldn't it? You need uh, continuity mm. in a project, especially with the spikers in its infancy. And um, when I got on it in November, I said quite clearly the bike needed some work. There was no point in thinking about the championship um, fight in 2020 because we were nowhere near there, there yet. We were already focusing on 2021. Fortunately, what's happened now with the, this COVID carry-on, as I like to, to call it, COVID carry-on, yeah, means that um, 2020 has almost disappeared and we may not even have a seat for 2021. So I want to be on the, um, the bike because I, I know the potential of it. And in many ways, I think I've unlocked the potential, the work that I've done to bring the, the bike forward. Uh, uh, I would like to be able to take advantage of that rather than uh, somebody else uh, rip the rewards of uh, my hard work. Yeah, it would be a bit of a shame to put it mildly. It's, I mean, it's a shame for both of you, isn't it? Knowing that, you know, one of you is not going to be on that bike next year and not quite knowing what's going to happen. But what have you and Tom said to each other? Do you sort of end up laughing about it? And because you obviously both know you're almost in a bit of a contest. Well, you are very much in a contest now, aren't you, for that second seat, as it were? Uh, well, Tom and I have known each other for so long and uh, we um, we were actually in Munich doing some PR activities for BMW whenever uh, the news broke. So it was a bit of a shock and uh, we were sharing a car back and forward to the hotel. So yeah, it was, <laughs> what can you do but say, huh, okay. So. so it was literally you sort of just found out as everyone else did, seeing it on Twitter or seeing it online. Well, it's unfortunately the, the nature of our sport at times. So it was a... A strange yeah. one for Tom and I, um, because we're yeah. we'd come from the the Lizard Ring test, trying to, to keep bringing the the bike forward, and with our experience, uh, I think that's what the bike needs right now. So I've ridden a lot of different bikes on a lot of different tires. I think there's as many riders that have ridden three different brands of tires on oh, how many five or six different makes of bike over the last lot of years. So that's one thing that uh, I have in abundance is is experience and. That's the same goes for the technical staff. Honestly, it's you can uh, liken the a rider's experience to a crew chief or engineer's experience, and we've brought some guys across from MotoGP. Uh, Marcus Eschenbacher is my crew chief, and some other donkers come across as well from Aprilia to join the, the BMW guys. And I think it's it's working really well because uh, the BMW guys understand their system well, but the experience that Marcus and Sander have um, from being with Aprilia KTM. I think there's no substitute for that, and that's the same for a rider. You know, if you've been on the same bike for all your career, you may not have that experience that, you, that a rider like I will have had from riding inline fours, V fours, V fours on Bridgestones, Mitchell, and Pirellis. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm very fortunate to have that experience, and it's in turn made me a, a great development rider without realizing it. And it's nice that BMW have been so complimentary in the work that I've done because uh, I don't self promote anywhere near enough and now that's why I'm, I am starting to praise myself because it's time that I did otherwise I end up getting pushed out as I have done in the past well I hope you're enjoying the interview with Eugene so far but let's quickly just pause from that and go back to a few more of the rider reactions from last week's Barcelona test starting with his teammate Tom Sykes for whatever reason you know, I've ended up like you said with a new new crew chief uh, Ian like you said little bit of a change with mechanics but uh, so obviously I went to the previous test with an open mind and you know we started working very well together I think we have a, a good a good team and, uh, and like I said we're, we're getting through a lot a lot of things we have a good test structured test and uh, we just keep working through that program but at the moment things are running very smooth in the previous test and also the test here in uh, Catalonia. Sykes, though, isn't the only multiple race winner who has a question mark hovering over him at the moment. What about Ducati superstar Chas Davis? Uh, honestly, nothing yet. I can't tell you anything. Um, my focus is in, uh, is in uh, doing the best I can for the rest of the season. Um, and yeah, until then, uh, I'm not sure. I think we're, uh, I've spoke with Aruba and Ducati, obviously, and there is a common... Um, a common uh, sort of thought that we, in some ways, that we'd like to to continue together, but until um, until I've signed, then obviously there's a, any possibility that it could could not be like that. So um, yeah, we just have to keep keep chatting in the next weeks and uh, see where we end up. Chaz's former teammate Alvaro Bautista was pleased to be back at Barcelona on the Honda. Yeah, for sure. It's always. Uh... 
I'm really happy to, to come back again so for, to ride the, this bike. And even if in, in my home I did some super motor and flat track uh, training, but uh, every, time, uh, every time that you ride this bike is totally different, no? especially in the first lap. It was everything like uh, coming very fast, no? My my mind was like uh, sleeping, no? So, but after a few laps, uh, I, I recovered the normal feeling. Yeah, and basically this test was for that, no? To recover the feeling and uh, get used to, to ride this bike, no? So nothing nothing new to test here. Just ride the bike and make some kilometers. And somebody we haven't heard from for a while is Garrett Gerloff. Actually, there was some real concern recently that he wouldn't be able to get back to Europe from America due to the travel restrictions that we're all hearing and seeing so much about in the news. But good news, the GRT Yamaha man is over here in Europe and he's ready to go racing again. Yeah, it uh, honestly wasn't that bad. This this place has a really nice flow to it and I was able to adapt pretty quick. Um, you know, and also everybody else was in the same uh, the same situation more or less. So uh, yeah, I was able to, to adapt quick and actually it was really nice to, um, to have the, the three months or four months of, of uh, time off because I was able to really process things and kind of organize different areas of my life um, and, and come with a, with a clear head to, to here, to this track and, um, and kind of come with a different perspective. And, and that really helped me uh, during this test. And I, I really feel like we made some, some big progress with uh, the Yamaha R1. And uh, yeah, just super happy with the bike, super happy with the team. And I'm just, man, I'm ready for, uh, for some racing, finally. You can really feel the excitement building again, can't you? It's palpable now. World Superbikes is just around the corner. Let's get back then to Eugene Laverty with this week's Full Throttle feature interview. It does seem as though in the paddock in general, whichever job you're in, you do have to push yourself, don't you? Because if you don't help yourself, no one else tends to, do they? No, and that's something that's become very clear to me. Uh, it's it's the nature of uh, Northern Irish people. We don't accept compliments very well. And it's happened to me so many times in the year after being maybe moved aside from a team where they'll say to me the next year, almost apologies that we made a mistake. You should be on this bike. You'd be fighting for the title. And that's such a strange position to be in. And that's almost happened now whenever I was moved aside um, from the BMW project and then brought in a year later. Uh, and that's in itself as a compliment. But it was only recently that's dawned on me, though. It was Paolo Pinheiro here at Porto Mal pointing it out to me because he'd noticed me doing it a lot. Mm. Uh, whenever I was stood, we were chatting with uh, Alex Rins and talking about the uh, Super Bowl lap I did here on the Aprilia, which was an incredible lap, 40.6 or something. And Paolo was, was praising me, saying how amazing a lap it was. And immediately, I didn't even realize I did it. I said, oh, yeah, the conditions were perfect. The clouds came over, it cooled down, so the asphalt was great. And April, it was working on rail. And Paolo just kind of snapped at me and said, no, it was you. You did an incredible lap. And little things like that makes me realize, yeah, that that's true. So I've been saying that a lot of the times in my career. So probably then people believe it. So if I'm voicing that and uh, giving the, <laughs> you know, the praise to the bike, rather than myself, then uh, mm. if I say that enough, then that becomes uh, what people tend to believe and it makes sense why I've often been pushed out. You're right, actually. I've, I, now you say that, that is true. I mean, a lot of the top riders often do say, don't they? And they might be joking or smiling while they say it, but they mean it. They say, oh, you know, I did an incredible lap. I got it all right. I've got all the sectors perfect. I've not really thought about that before, but they do actually say that, don't they? Yeah. Uh, we're a little bit more modest in that way. It's not something we do intentionally. It just it comes out. We can't. Yeah, we can't. Yeah, the accept, adrenaline's flowing. We can't accept praise. It's a well-known fact about Northern Irish people. It's very funny. Uh, <laughs> you know, Johnny's a little bit different. Uh, Johnny grew up racing uh, motocross in England, and he was always a little bit more sure of himself. And that's uh, been a great thing for him in his career. But um, yeah. yeah, I'm at the age of 34 now, and I'm finally catching myself on and realizing that uh, it's up to me to to really point out some of the things that I do well. Um, that's what I've done in the, the race run in Barcelona, talking about strong points in her technical report. I always would have, and I also did it whenever I wrote it yesterday, saying about how well the traction control was working at the end of the race run and uh, this and that. But then I realized, hang on, there's two more points I need to include here. And I pointed out the two things that I was doing great <laughs> to look after the tire. And it's time that I started doing that because I've always complimented the, the bike and uh, not pointing out that in fact that you know some things uh, how I was picking the bike up right 
uh, how smooth it was in the gas and using uh, the rear brake as a secondary traction control, things like that also helped. So that needs to be pointed out too. Just to complete the feeling on that test, somebody described it to me the other day as a bit of an X-factor shootout between the BMW riders. Does it actually feel like that? Did it feel like that? Did you go into the test thinking we need to develop this motorcycle? Or are you sort of sneakily looking across at one another thinking, I'm after you? Definitely, it had to be uh, changed. Really? <laughs> approach. But not, not for the whole test, because that would be silly. Uh, we knew that there was prime time whenever the, the asphalt was cold. We knew that was the time for the X-factor edition. Uh, the rest of the time... <laughs> Uh, it was a case of, of doing your long runs. I did a race run both days in the heat of the afternoon because we've got these first five rounds coming up where it's going to be hot and slippery. So um, I then focused on day two in the morning to do um, some fast laps and I put in new race tires. Like, uh, as my brother John said, but yeah, you put in new, more new rear tires than uh a club rider would at Mandela Park over the course of a season in the space of that one hour two, because uh, I had to put in a new race tyre and then I put in a new um, super pole race tyre which I did my fastest lap on and then was like okay let's go for the qualifying tyre and uh, get caught out but I had done I think four time attacks uh, up to then as a lot of the other riders had been doing but I, I never used to get caught up in the past because um, I never focused on that I never understood the whole concept of looking to see your name at the top of a timesheet in a test, it really didn't make sense to me. I remember the first MotoGP test I did in Sepang, uh, where it's a three-day test, and the guys were talking about uh, day three, you know, the 10 o'clock in the morning when the track opens there until 11, this time attack. And I was, you know, almost asking the question, what, sorry, what is this? Is this something like where BMW used to give a car in pre-season tests? And I was genuinely not sure what was mm. going on. And they're like, no, no, this is, this is what you, you know, we do. We do the time attack now. I was like, okay, so I said, right, we made a bit of a plan where I think I put in two new rear tires. But I didn't realize some guys were putting in four new rear tires. Um, our allocation may not even, you know, that's almost half your allocation for the three days. So you're just absolutely destroying those tires, which you can then use for work purposes for longer runs later in the day. But still, I'd rather keep uh, a tire for doing them long runs rather than uh, you can really hammer a tire in a, in a couple of laps and then the tire never returns. And so that's what you have to do in these time attacks. So yeah, it's the first time I've really get caught up in it. And it was, it was a bit of fun at the same time. But um, I think uh, <laughs> it, it wasn't so fun then when I had to go into the gravel and put it down. It's interesting, though, because listening to an interview Scott Redding did with some journalists at the test the other day as well, he said him and Jonathan Ray got into a bit of a fight. And he said it was funny. He said I was actually laughing, but... You know, he'd go out, put a fresh tire on, he'd come back in, having set the fastest time. I'd go back out, do the same thing, come back in, he'd go back out again. And this went on three or four times, apparently, and they were following each other around at 1.2 at the end of the first day. And sure enough, Jonathan ends the test fastest on the combined timesheet, Scott Redding second over the two days. Is that, is it a confidence thing? Is it is it uh, an ego thing? Is it to boost the team to be able to say, we finished fastest or is it for publicity for the sponsors you know you get all the headlines in this case ray fastest in barcelona test is it a combination of these things a one-off lap time in testing doesn't really matter does it but maybe it does well i can understand it between uh, johnny and scott because um they're on refined packages their bikes are uh, are the two title contenders so mm. they, they can afford to do that and that's a little bit they don't need they don't need to do that i mean i think it's great they do i think it's, it's really entertaining but they don't need to do that do they no but that's when you think about it um johnny knows what he's going to be able to do in a long run he knows that yeah. like how many risks okay. he's done a guy in my position doesn't know that's why i have to focus on these long runs i'm trying to bring the project forward so it is actually beneficial for guys like johnny and scott because when you think about it then they have a refined package, so okay, let's work on their time attack because then that's working on your riding for, say, the super pole to get pole position, things like that. So that is actually beneficial for them. That's the little 1% that they can work on. Also, you see Kawasaki a lot in tests and also Ducati a lot in tests and doing practice starts because yeah. they're they're working on that 1%. You know, practice starts and stuff is fairly far down our, the order and our list of mm. priorities because we have right. to, to bring the bike on in uh much bigger areas to get those big five uh, percent jumps. So yeah, for them guys, it makes perfect sense. But for, for us to be, you know, trying to jump up into the top three to to make ourselves look better than the reality of where we are, it doesn't really serve a purpose. That that said, in Barcelona, I probably was the third fastest guy, which was uh, a nice surprise to me. 
Um, that was cool to be right up at the sharp end. But Johnny and Scott have got another level above us. I think on the, the race runs, we could say if we were on track together, it would have been uh, Johnny and Scott would have started together. Uh, I think Tom and I would have started together. And then let's say after maybe one third distance, Johnny would have escaped away from Scott. Um, but Scott would have been uh, the same gap in front of me. And then I, I would have um, pulled away from Tom in the second half of the race. You know, it was almost a second lap quicker uh, the last five laps uh, compared to, to Tom on the same bike, which was was good. Um, so, Do you think Tom would agree with that? Oh, well, we can see it on the, on the, the breakdown analysis, which okay. uh, it shows the steps that we've made with this traction control package to be able to maintain that kind of pace. And uh, while Johnny and Scott were able to do 42s early on, I wasn't able to do that. But by uh, one third distance, I was lapping the same as Johnny. And then the last third of the race, I was closing in um, three quarters of a second a lap on Scott. So that was really good to see. That, That's uh, great. I was able to maintain, I think on lap 13 of my race run, I did my fastest lap of the race run, whereas the other guys mm. by then had dropped off by a second. So clear we need to improve our early lap pace, but I was really focused on that um, consistency and being able to do those 43s. So while the last lot of laps I was able to maintain 43.6, um, you know, Tom was into high 44s, also Loris Baz um, dropping off the pace there. So that shows the work we've done with his bike. Uh, the steps have been huge because the bike wasn't quite there in November and I'm really proud of the work that the guys have done because um, together we brought the bike forward despite the fact that we haven't even been able to be on track because of what's happened with the, the pandemic. Uh, the bike is an incredible position now. We're just lacking two main things. Um, theoretically, race runs look good on paper. Like I just explained to you there, if we were to mirror race runs, what would happen on track? Said at the end of the race, Johnny may have finished um, four seconds ahead of Scott. I may have been another three behind Scott. And then uh, Tom, uh, well, Baz probably would have been next to another maybe four seconds behind me. And then Tom, another five behind that, say. So it looks good on paper. But what happens whenever you're battling with uh, bikes that are going maybe almost 15 kilometers an hour quicker than you in a straight line? You get beat up. So we need horsepower if we're really going to be in that fight. And that's what we're lacking right now. Um, I'm able to do great runs of laps, but unfortunately, if I overtake a guy around a twisty part of the track and somebody's gaining um, half a second to three quarters of a second a lap on you in straight line speed, you're not going to be able to hold them off. So we need to find horsepower if we're going to win races this year. Yeah, I suppose it just goes to show horsepower is not the be all and end all, but goodness me, it really helps. It's better to have it than not to have it, isn't it? Yeah, um, I liken it to... The old uh, phrase, if you're going to be dumb, you got to be tough. Uh, you have to have <laughs> or the other. You've, ideally, you can have both. You can have a bike that goes in a straight line and a bike that also decelerates well, stops well and braking. Unfortunately, right now, that's our remaining two weaknesses. The bike doesn't have the horsepower. And then this issue that I have in braking with the, with the chassis twisting, we need to address one or the other or preferably both because um, if guys are going to overtake me in a straight line, I need to be able to... Well, stop the thing well on the anchors and unfortunately right now we're not able to do that the thing is though does that mean you're going to have to sacrifice some of your weekend setup practice time on a friday to get these things sorted out before really dialing into the circuit for the race weekend in question not necessarily because um strangely we, we kind of have reached the the limit of the bike in braking and that's you know you you know where you're at because if you squeeze the brake more and nothing happens, the bike doesn't decelerate more, then you know you're in trouble. You know, at that stage, the bike should either stop more or the rear wheel should come off the ground. And that's not happening for us right now. And that's why we know it's something that we need to do with the, the chassis. Um, been waiting on it since January. It's a long time. Um, hopefully after that second crash of mine, was maybe beneficial in a way, <laughs> more beneficial than mm. it would have been to do that uh, super fast lap in the qualifying tire because that's reiterated. The, yeah. the issue that's there with the chassis that I've been uh, commenting on because the, the thing needs, we need this um, upgrade and uh, the sooner it comes, uh, the better it's going to be for that one lap pace and uh, then also overtaking guys in races. You've done a bit of a Mark Marquez. He's always learning from crashes. He crashes a lot, doesn't he, through practice sessions, but he seems to learn a lot from doing it. I guess you know where the limit is then, don't you? Yeah, that's, that's uh, <laughs> the beauty of our sport. Yeah. You're always learning, and that's why a rider, 34 years of age like me, um, riding faster than I ever have. But I've also got the experience, and 
I'd always try to keep learning. Every day is a school day and little things that I've been doing where I said I haven't crashed, thankfully, much since that uh, incident in Nemo last year. But um, little ideas taken from Marquez, you know, that guy's got cat-like reflexes. He's yeah. got his knee and his elbow on the ground. And it's not like he uses the knee slider much. You know, it's not like he's already leaning on it so that he can then catch it. He barely uses his knee slider. It's just once the front tire folds, he then reacts that quickly to push himself back upright, whereas most of us can cut the odd one, but not the the quick slides. Um, I've kind of come across a, a thing that's working well for me in Pirelli tires now, where I don't have my elbow on the, the ground anymore. It, we, we're just a little bit off it, you know, uh, MotoGP on those bikes here, your elbow just went on the ground without you, you trying. Whereas now my elbow's a little bit off the ground. So it's working well for me that whenever I do lose the front now, there's enough time for that gap before I bounce on my elbow and bounce back up. So that's uh, something that I've uh, brought into my riding style now and it's saving a lot of front end slides. I was doing that a lot at Lousett Ring where I would then lose the front and uh, almost bounce back off the ground on my elbow. So it gave me the time to, to react, to pick myself back upright because not everybody can uh, be like Mark Marquez and already have their elbow on the ground and react that quickly to pick yourself up again just very quickly what sort of state is the lausitz ring in now because when we were last there in 2017 and that was the last world superbike round we were all sort of told the circuit's going to be sold on or, or maybe even closed is it still in a decent state then it must be it's uh, as we left it uh i would say mm. the, the big okay. thing the lausitz ring really needs is a new asphalt because it's it's just too bumpy to really be um a track where you can really feel the bike everywhere because if you're not able to maintain constant brake pressure or open the gas in a smooth way because you're having to contend with a bump here or a bump there, yeah. then you're, you're not going to extract the, the maximum from the bike. So I would say out of any track that I've ridden, Lousett Ring would be the best test track on the calendar if they had a new asphalt because it's got hard braking, it's got um, your tight corners, it's got a few long corners, yeah. it's got changes of direction in braking and changes of direction on the gas. Because um, that means you, it's got everything, is what I'm trying to say. Because some tracks, yeah. like Jerez, where your crew chief will ask you, uh, how's the direction change? And you say, ah, there is no direction change at this track because the direction changes there are progressively from one side to the other. There's nowhere where you actually have yeah. to fight the bike. So, Lousy Strength, but in your asphalt, that place would be amazing for testing. I actually quite like going there. Everyone was complaining about the bumps, weren't they? But I thought from a TV spectacle, it was actually quite good. Um, it's quite spectacular as well, isn't it? With all those big uh, wind turbine things everywhere and the big grandstands. I suppose it just feels a bit empty though, doesn't it? With such a massive grandstand, you really do need a lot of people there to, to fill it up. Yeah. That was a great complex I've got there. As it, yeah. Decker and I have it as a testing facility. Yeah. So there's no more racing happening anymore. Three quick things, Eugene, before we go. Uh, one of them is about you personally and your name, I wanted to ask. One of them is about World Superbikes in general, and one of them is about BMW. So first of all, your nickname is Norge, isn't it? That's what a lot of people call you in the paddock, N-O-R-G-E, Norge. Where did that come from? Uh, typically, when you've got older brothers, they pick up on all sorts of things. Whenever I was, I think, three years old, I was trying to say a guy's name, George, and mm. I kept shouting Norge, and that's how, <laughs> that's how it stuck from there. So that's the joys of having elder brothers that don't let you away with much. Yeah. Well, my younger brother calls me David for some reason, which I mean, it's nothing to do with Greg, is it? But I think he started calling me Dave once and that became David. So yeah, <laughs> we've been called worse things, though, haven't we? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the second question was about, uh, well, I'll talk about BMW first. Have you been given any indication as to when an announcement will be made? Because I've heard various things from, it was all going to be decided on the Barcelona test. We might even know before we get to Jerez. Will it be after a few rounds? Do you and Tom Sykes actually know when that decision will be made? Well, you know, nothing, John Snow. I think that's pretty much uh, where we're at. Um, the last few weeks is anything to go by. That's why I'm just concentrating on my performance, uh, keeping in contact with BMW. And um, oh, there's, there's not much else we can do. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a tough position to be in. Don't get me wrong, because um, we're trying to concentrate on being the best we can be for what is essentially the upcoming season, but yet not knowing if we're going to have a job for the following season. Uh, yeah. I don't know if we're going to be judged on well, the test until now, if they're going to wait to judge us on races. It's a tough one to know. It is literally a bit like life has been through this whole COVID time for all of us. You're going to have to take each day as it comes. And I guess without sounding too dramatic, every lap counts now, Eugene, doesn't it? It really does. It does. Um, but that's always been a, a good thing for me because I don't, 
I don't like uh, riding around solely on track. <laughs> That's uh, no, yeah. the thing. So every lap does count for me. Uh, I don't waste laps. I think on day one of the test, I did 83 laps, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Two of them were touring laps because one hour we shot the first chicane. And yeah. then the second turn lap was at the end of the day. Whenever I tried to push for a lap, I did two flyers and then one off to let the tire recover. And then add on day two of the test where I did 78 laps. I didn't do one single turn lap. Every lap was pushing, and uh, that's just like you said. Uh, waste not, want not. You got to make every lap count. And final thing, Eugene. Um, realistically, if you take off the BMW hat for a moment, imagine you're a Eurosport pundit for a second. How many riders do you realistically foresee being on the podium this season? Because just looking down the list, we've obviously got Ray, Redding, Sykes should have a chance. You should have a chance. Lowe's, we already have. Toprak, of course. Vandermark, Baz, Davis. And there's more. I mean, Haslam, Bautista, all of these guys could get podiums, couldn't they, this year? Do you, What do you reckon? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Because people usually talk about race wins, which is uh, much more difficult because mm-hmm. <laughs> getting that top set of the podium means you have to beat everybody else. Yeah. There's, there's 10 guys. I've just thought off of the top of my head across all five of the top manufacturers and... I'm not sure if I'm missing out on any, anybody. Else. Loris Baz, I missed out actually. He's, there you go. He's There's, a contender, isn't he? Surely. Loris Baz, even a uh, 11. That's yeah. World Superbike is in a great place because I think uh, whenever I got on the, the podium on Aprilia in 2018, that was the first non-Kawasaki Ducati Yamaha podium since uh, Nicky Hayden won on the Honda. It's a yes. So that, yes, it was. Yeah. That's a lot of years. I can't remember, was that 60? Yeah, so that was two years with just those three bikes in the podium. And now you and I are just talking about 11 very likely riders to be on the podium. And that's not um, trying to grasp at numbers. That's 11 almost definites, I would say. And then there's a few others to, that could maybe do it. Because we're going to get drama, aren't we? With the temperature so hot in Jerez, it's going to be track, well, it's going to be over 60 degrees or something, track temperature, I guess. And Portimao is not going to be cold either. We're going to have mistakes, aren't we? We're going to have riders sliding off. We're going to have, I would imagine, and I kind of hope we do, um, have a few surprises for the good of the championship. That's brilliant, isn't it? I think uh, summer races are always the best uh, because you never know what's going to happen in the second half of the race whenever tyre management comes into it. It's going to be really interesting to watch. We've got five rounds in hot, slick conditions with a lot of the tracks have got slippery tarmac as well because they do get cooked in the summer. So we're going to see the last five laps of the race. Um, it's it's going to be really, really fun to watch because that's the problem sometimes, isn't it? If a, a race is kind of a formality and it all follows suit, but if guys are starting to drop backwards at the end of a race and some guys are coming forward by a second a lap, you're starting to do the math and it gets interesting then. So I think it's going to be really exciting to watch. Really? So you reckon when we're all watching on telly back at home or us in the commentary box, those last five laps, everything could turn on its head? Yeah, uh, we saw it in in the Barcelona test even, uh, every bike. So it wasn't like it was, you know, a difference between the bikes. We were great for 15 laps and then suddenly it was those last five laps. It was like, whoa, the tire changed a lot. So that's three quarters distance in that heat. And then uh, the last quarter of the race is is where it's all going to get interested. And that's where um, how the rider deals with it's going to come into play. It's uh, it's all up to the rider then. Okay, it's going to be very, very interesting. And I can't wait, I must say. Eugene, thanks so much for everything, for your time. Uh, good luck keeping the dog in. And also <laughs> good luck uh, with the future as well, because it's going to be, yeah, it's an important few weeks, isn't it? It is. Um, but I'm, I'm sat here very content after that test because uh, I felt there was potential before with uh, the bike that I'm currently on. But then after this two-day test, two test, it really confirmed it. And uh, I'm so excited for what lies ahead. And most importantly, I guess, at the end of this interview, it means that we haven't disrupted your wife Pippa's plans to get out on a nice boat trip this afternoon with some salted caramel ice cream, I believe. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a Saturday afternoon. You've got to look after yourself. <laughs> Usually, thanks very much. Good luck for the season and good luck with the future. Thanks again. Cheers, Greg Norris. Good luck then to Eugene for the rest of his year. And thank you again for your time, Eugene. That's it for this week's show. Please subscribe if you can to the Full Throttle podcast on all major podcast platforms, where you can also listen back to the full archive of 84 episodes so far, dating back to early 2018. And I can't quite believe I'm saying this, 
I thought the day might never come, but just one more episode to go now before we get racing again. We will be back in two weeks' time with our season preview to a season which began five months ago, if that makes any sense. But counting down the clock now to World Superbike 2020, getting back underway. And don't forget MotoGP as well with highlights on Discovery's Quest channel. That's back this weekend. Heretha now poised for a triple dose of World Championship bike racing action. The Moto Grand Prix of Spain, the Moto Grand Prix of Andalusia on the same circuit. And then on the third weekend, the Spanish World Superbike Round. Many thanks from me, Greg Haynes. Next podcast, the season preview, if you know what I mean, Monday the 27th of July. Bye for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.